Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We are continuing our slow march through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the divided church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. Tonight, we're going to try and answer two questions about the spiritual gifts. We've been studying a little mini-series starting in this chapter about the spiritual gifts, and tonight we're going to ask the question, what and where are they? But let's look at our text. I'm going to start reading in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll go through verse 11. Hear God's word for us. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the Spirit of utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is God's word. May he add its blessing to its reading. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would work, that he would be among us even tonight, that he would illumine the text of scripture, that he would reveal to us again the word, principally the word seen in our great Savior. We ask that you would do this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So tonight my plan is to try and answer two questions about the spiritual gifts. What were they and where are they today? What did they look like and where can we see them? So to answer the first question, we can look at Paul's list in verses 8 through 10. This is one of a few different lists of spiritual gifts given in the New Testament. You could also look at 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, or Romans 12, 6 through 8, which you can do for homework. Um, it is worth noting that each of these lists slightly differs. If you examine them side by side, you'll notice some gifts that are common to each list and some found on only one list. And I think that indicates to us that none of these lists are meant to be exhaustive. I think Paul is merely here giving us a sampling of the possible gifts, probably those especially present within the Corinthian congregation. Now, it's an interesting exercise to wonder what other gifts there might be unlisted in these passages, but present among the body, but I'll let you ponder that later. For now, we can go through this list, and I'll briefly describe each one. Paul begins in verse 8 with the utterance of wisdom. This special gift of wisdom allows the possessor to rightly perceive situations and apply God's word in order to bring about the best and godliest results. When we think of wisdom, we often think of Solomon and his answered prayer where God made him the wisest man on earth. Men and women came from all over to see Solomon's gift of wisdom. People with this gift are able to bring light and clarity to complex situations. When a wise person speaks, people listen because they have proven themselves to be adept at applying God's word, capable handlers of the sword of the Spirit. We could think back to the text I preached last week from Acts 6, 
where the apostles asked the people to choose from among themselves men full of wisdom. And they did just that, selecting seven men, one of which was Stephen, who was said in Acts 6.10 to have wisdom that was so profound his opponents could not refute him. And the next gift in the list is similar. He says the utterance of knowledge. Here we might think of someone having the gift of knowing something that would otherwise be unknowable. For example, remember the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira had sold a piece of land and they were pretending to be generous by giving it all to the church. However, they tried to deceive everyone and secretly kept back a portion of it for themselves. They let their greed get the best of them and thought nobody would know if they just skimmed a little off the top. But Peter knew. He knew something that was, humanly speaking, unknowable. He knew about the lie. He called them out for lying to God, and he condemned condemned them. And that knowledge that Peter had was a gift. It was a gift from the Holy Spirit, and was the ability that would never have been possible without the Spirit's working. That's an example of the gift of knowledge. Next in our list, Paul gives the gift of faith. Faith. Now, a certain element of faith is common to every believer. It's not as though some Christians have faith and some Christians do not have faith. Every Christian must have faith in Jesus Christ or they wouldn't be a Christian. Faith is the sine qua non of salvation. Without it, there is none. There is no salvation. And yet, we all have probably interacted with believers who seem to have a special gift of faith. There are some Christians who seem to have a more resilient faith, a more robust, a deeper faith, a hardier, sturdier faith. We've known Christians who can remain joyful even in the midst of terrible sorrow. Some Christians can remain hopeful even when there seems to be no way out of their complex trial. Some can choose to love even when surrounded by nothing but hate. That's a gift of faith. And this, it seems to me, would be more than a mere baseline Christian faith. It would be indicative of a, more of a spiritual gift of faith. These people rarely seem to struggle with doubt. They never question their calling. They never entertain the possibility that God's Word is anything less than the absolute truth. Stephen, for example, is called a man full of faith, Acts 6, 5. Think of Peter. And John, who went before the council in Acts 4, Peter and the other apostles in Acts 5, who, when charged with never preaching the name of Jesus again, boldly responded, we must obey God rather than men. That's bold faith, and it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. Next, in verse 9, Paul lists the gift of healing. The gift of healing. And the verbal form of this word is used several times throughout Acts, and it references special miraculous, supernatural actions of physical restoration. For example, Peter says to a paralyzed man named Aeneas in Acts 9.34, Jesus Christ heals you, make up your bed and go. He hadn't walked, walked in eight years, but Peter just speaks words and the man is healed. Peter wasn't the only one with that, that gift. Acts 28.8, Paul went to the father of a man named Publius who was sick and he had fever and dysentery. And the text says that Paul visited him, prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. This was a powerful gift of the Holy Spirit. 
similar to the power demonstrated by Jesus himself that we've been hearing through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings. And related to this gift of healing, perhaps is a broader category that Paul mentions next called the working of miracles. The working of miracles. This gift is mentioned in many places, like in Acts 19.11, which says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. We could think of Philip in Acts 8, dealing with Simon the sorcerer. Verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, the gift of miracles doesn't have a single expression, but the effect is clear. The gift of miracles confirmed the validity and the veracity of the message that was being proclaimed. And it confirmed the legitimacy of the one being sent by God himself. But more on that in a little bit. Next in our list is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy. This is the gift of receiving and then proclaiming divinely revealed truth on behalf of God. Prophets were the mouthpiece of God, and as such, when they spoke, they spoke with divine authority. Sometimes they brought words of judgment. Sometimes they proclaimed truth about the future. You might call it foretelling. Think of Agabus predicting a coming famine in Acts 11, which later came true. We'll talk more about prophecy in a little bit. Let's move on to the next gift, which is the ability to distinguish between spirits. The ability to distinguish between spirits. If you recall, John speaks a lot about this in his letters. 1 John 4, for example, says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the age prior to the closing of the New Testament, there were many, many false prophets claiming to speak on behalf of God, when in reality they were not inspired by the Holy Spirit at all. Indeed, the Corinthian congregation seems to have been victim of these false prophets. These false prophets whom John calls antichrists, 1 John 2. They go about under false pretenses, seeking to turn people away from the truth of God. And to combat these false spirits, the Holy Spirit gives some people an extra measure of discernment to judge between what is true and what is false, between what is godly and what is satanic, between what is genuine and what is fake. We see something of this in Chapter 14, verse 29, where Paul says that two or three prophets should speak and then the others should weigh what was said. The weighing of prophetic speech was a kind of discernment, a gift of ability to discern, hopefully done by those gifted by the Holy Spirit in this way. And lastly, in our list, we see the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. If you remember back to Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit gifted many people to speak in languages that they had previously not known. This was a momentous event in redemptive history and a foretaste of the ultimate undoing of the curse at Babel. 
The same gift was extended to the Gentiles in Acts 10.46 when the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles in the fullness of His new covenant ministry. Now these tongues, we should note, uh, contrary to what many people think today, were known languages. The word for tongues in 1 Corinthians 12-14 is glossa, which means languages, foreign tongues. At Pentecost... In Acts 2, the text says that each of them was hearing the people speak in his own language. It was intelligible. It was recognizable. In Acts 10, it says that they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. How could they know that God was being extolled if the languages were not intelligible? If they were not known languages? They couldn't. Indeed, Paul's arguments about tongues in chapter 14 assume that the language spoken by the gifted tongue speaker would be an intelligible foreign language. We'll get to that chapter soon. Similarly, the one gifted in the interpretation of tongues would be gifted by the Holy Spirit to interpret or translate the inspired tongue's message and communicate it to the body so that everyone might be edified. Indeed, so important was the gift of interpretation that in chapter 14, verse 5, puts a properly interpreted tongue's message on par with prophecy. Thus says the Lord, prophecy. And the lack of a properly gifted interpreter means that the tongue speaker should remain silent in the public assembly. And so that was our perhaps not-so-brief survey of what some of the gifts are in this passage but I'd like to spend the remainder of our time tonight answering the question, where are they today? Do people have all of these gifts today? That question is complicated, and it will require a whole lot of biblical information gathered together, and I'm going to try and present you a summary argument. Now, as we've previously mentioned, all of Christian tradition affirms that every single believer has been gifted in some way. Each has a gift. However, the majority of Christian tradition affirms that not all the gifts continue to today, at least not in the same way. The debate centers on a more specific question, namely whether or not a subgroup of the spiritual gifts, which we might call the miraculous gifts, or the supernatural gifts, continue for today. These miraculous or revelatory gifts like tongues or prophecy, the special gifts of healing and miracles, do they continue today or not? Now, as you examine the literature today, you'll see that there's two main positions, and I'll survey them briefly and endeavor to defend one of them, largely with the help of a couple of authors who I commend to you, one is Sam Waldron. He wrote a book called To Be Continued, Are the Miraculous Gifts for Today? And the other one is by O. Palmer Robertson called The Final Word. Both of these are very good. I commend them to you. The first camp held by the Pentecostals and the Charismatics is called Continuationism. It believes that all of the spiritual gifts in one way or another are given to the church in the same or very similar manner as described in Acts 2. The gift of apostleship, the gift of prophecy, tongues, healing, they're all given to the church today. Everything about the new covenant, gifts of the Holy Spirit continues. The other position, which we might call cessationism, believes that the miraculous gifts have ceased. Cessationism. 
believes that there are no apostles today, that there are no people gifted to perform miracles or healings. There are no prophets on earth today. Now, to be sure, the cessationist does not believe that miracles don't happen at all. They certainly do. The question is whether we have gifted miracle workers today, gifted prophets giving divinely inspired revelation, gifted healers, gifted tongue speakers. And the cessationist would answer in the negative. And that's the position that I believe is most aligned with biblical revelation. I do believe that the miraculous gifts have ceased to be given by the Holy Spirit to the church. And I think that conclusion is merited both from observation and also Scripture. In terms of observation, which is admittedly anecdotal, I've never noticed people with the gift of healing or miracles showing up at the cancer center or the burn ward. Usually see people that claim to have these gifts, and they demonstrate them in circumstances which cannot be questioned, cannot be reproduced, and in situations, sadly, where money is being sought. But more importantly, I'd like to make a logical argument for the cessationist position from Scripture. This is an argument that will build upon itself. You might call it a cascading argument. That's what the language that Waldron uses. It's like a chain, and it needs each successive link to remain strong. And the argument is this. First, there are no apostles today. Second, there are no prophets. Third, there are no tongue speakers. Fourth, there are no miracle workers. No apostles, no prophets, no tongue speakers, no miracle workers. First link in the chain. There are no apostles today. The apostolate, the office of the apostles, was not a repeatable one. There are some people today just like in Paul's day, who believe themselves to be apostles. They are clearly not. You can turn on the TV, you can hear on the radio about apostle so-and-so. They're just plain wrong. They're deceived. The apostles, Scripture teaches us, were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Nobody alive today can have such credentials. Further, the apostles were commissioned by Christ himself. Not everyone who witnessed the resurrection automatically became an apostle, did they? No, you had to be commissioned. You had to be called. You had to be, we could say, anointed for that particular role. Furthermore, the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself to speak and to write on behalf of God. They wrote, indeed, the Word of God. They were tasked with speaking God's truth on God's behalf. They were witnesses. They were commissioned And they were inspired. That's what makes an apostle. And we could look at Acts 22 where we see all three of these marks. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. But Paul Paul tells the story of his own conversion and commissioning in Acts Acts 22. Starting in verse 12, he says, I was on my way and I drew near to Damascus. And about noon, a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, that's, that's the eyewitness part. Now, in verse 12, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. 
And at that very hour I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of your fathers has appointed you to know his will. That's the inspiration. To see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you are to be a witness for him. There's the commissioning to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Paul was an eyewitness. He was inspired with divine knowledge and insight, and he was commissioned by God to serve the church in a special way. And this apostolate, the group of the apostles as a whole, was foundational to the church. This is another argument to why the apostleship does not continue today. Ephesians 2.20 says, The church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You can think of Matthew 16, where Jesus speaks to Peter, a representative of the apostles, and he says he would build his church upon that rock. Revelation 21.14, which says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The apostles were the foundation of the church. And once you finish building the foundation, you move on to the building. You don't need more foundation once you finish building it. You don't go back and lay more foundation once it's finished. You move on to the next thing. So it was with construction. So it is with the church. So given these arguments, I think a strong case can be made that there is at least one gift that does not continue today, which is the gift of being an apostle. Those were men who were spirit-inspired, divinely commissioned witnesses of the resurrection who served as the foundation of the church. Thus, such cannot exist today. Second link in the chain, no prophets. No prophets. And the office of a prophet was not original to the New Testament church. In the Old Testament, as you know, there were prophets. Their office was recognized and regulated by Scripture. Think back to when God calls Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. but He doesn't want to do it, does he? Exodus 4, God says to Moses, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. You shall be as God to him. Moses was the principal prophet, and a prophet was someone who spoke on behalf of God. We could say he is the mouth of God. Such was the relationship between God and his mouthpiece that any who dared speak a false message or to speak presumptuously or to speak in the name of any other God would be killed, would be put to death. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, both examples of that. False prophets must die. However, even with the droves of people today claiming the gift of prophecy... You don't see many people trying to enforce this standard today. And they do that because many continuationists make a distinction between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. They say that Old Testament prophecy was scriptural, revelatory, infallible in every way, ironclad directly from God. They stand strong on that, thankfully. But New Testament prophecy, they would say, is of a different kind. It's a potentially fallible prophecy. 
It's infallible in its sending, but when it gets to us, we're potentially flawed in our receiving of that infallible message from God. That's the key difference. Old Testament prophecy, they say, was infallible. New Testament, potentially fallible. Now, people I highly respect teach this view. Wayne Grudem is one of the key proponents of this in our day. He's written a lot on it. Others like D.A. Carson teach something like this. However, I, I remain unconvinced. I see no reason in Scripture to believe that Old Testament and New Testament prophecy are fundamentally different. And there are several reasons for that conclusion. First, the Bible uses the same words, the same terms, for both Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. There's no difference in terminology of prophecy between the Testaments. Second, Old Testament and New Testament prophecy are referenced side by side throughout the book of Acts, almost seamlessly. I won't give you a long list of references. A good study Bible will do that for you. But you can see old and new side by side treated with the exact same weight. Third, reading about the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, 16 to 21, clearly equates Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. It cites the Old Testament prophet Joel, who says that your sons and daughters will prophesy without making any distinction between the quality of the prophecy. The continuationist distinction between old and new prophecy falls flat. Fourth, and perhaps most substantially, the, the book of Revelation is clearly called prophecy. But if New Covenant prophecy is potentially fallible as the continuationist contends, then that rattles the faith that we have, the confidence we have in the inerrancy and trustworthiness of the book of Revelation. Their position inadvertently undermines the sufficiency, the inerrancy, the infallibility, the trustworthiness of the doctrine of Scripture. And we could go on, but I think the point is made. Saying that Old Testament prophecy is infallible while New Testament prophecy is potentially fallible fails to convince from the text and it produces shockwaves for the rest of our theology, especially the doctrine of Scripture. Thus, back to our major point, if Old Testament and New Testament prophecy are gifts of the Holy Spirit and have their origin in divine inspiration, then for people today to claim they have the gift of prophecy is to claim that they are speaking revelation on par with Scripture. If you claim to be a prophet today, inspired by the Holy Spirit, then you are claiming to speak with the same authority as Paul and Peter. And your words ought to be written in the back of our Bible as we go. But thankfully, most evangelical charismatics don't go that far. I, on the other hand, agree with John Owen, who wrote on the subject 400 years ago, he saw the issue goes down at root to the sufficiency of Scripture. He said that if you have some sort of private revelation and it agrees with Scripture, then it's needless. If you have a private revelation that disagrees with Scripture, then it's false. There's no middle ground for something that's divinely inspired and yet potentially fallible. Logically, it doesn't convince. Textually, I don't see it. Prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit does not continue today. Next, third link in the chain. No tongue speaking. No tongue speaking. No apostles, no prophets, no tongue speakers. Now, if you're tracking with me this far, this point won't be too difficult because tongue speaking 
when accompanied with the gift of interpretation, was a form of prophecy. And indeed, it was functionally equivalent to prophecy. And therefore, if there's no prophecy today, then there will be no gifts of tongues either. As mentioned above, 1 Corinthians 14, 5, tells us that the gifts of tongue and interpretations are just as important as prophecy. Meaning that the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation, when properly exercised within the life of the body, were elevated to the level of infallible direct revelation and on par with the Old Testament prophets and the apostles. Now that is miles away from what most people in evangelical charismatic circles believe today, thankfully. They think the gift of tongues is some sort of individual, personal, encouraging activity meant to allow me to commune more closely and intimately with God. They rarely believe that they are receiving direct, infallible revelation on par with Scripture. But that's what Paul assumes in his arguments. And if that link is clear that tongues and interpretation is on par with prophecy, and if prophecy has ceased to be a gift with the closing of the canon of Scripture, then it's not hard to make the connection that the gifts of tongues and interpretation have also ceased. Additionally, Before I move on to the final link in the chain, it's also worth noting that the sometimes impressive and bizarre, sometimes bizarre activity of speaking in tongues is not necessarily an exclusively Christian activity at all. I don't know if you've ever studied this. The phenomenon of speaking in tongues is also called by sociologists free vocalization. And you could Google it sometimes. Sociologists have observed free vocalization, what looks like speaking in tongues, and have observed it in utterly non-Christian environments. Various pagan and shaman religions outside of the Christian influence have this activity documented among them. And so there's nothing necessarily spiritual or even Christian about speaking in tongues. Now, if that's the case, that there's nothing necessarily Christian about this free vocalization which some call speaking in tongues, then we have to be careful of falling into the trap of the Corinthian believers. They assumed that whatever was impressive must be genuine. Whatever was unusual must be brought about by God. We can't judge that way. We must judge by Scripture. Lastly, last link in the chain. No apostles, no prophets, no tongue speakers. Fourth, no miracle workers. No miracle workers. Biblically speaking, we could consider, we should consider a miracle in a very narrow definition. We speak imprecisely about miracles all the time. Do you see that miraculous Hail Mary at the end of the fourth quarter? We could speak of a baby being born and the miracle of life. Yes, God has worked in a wonderful, mighty way to sustain that baby, but it is not a miracle, biblically speaking. It's not a sign. Precisely speaking, miracles in Scripture are redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary manifestations of God's power. Redemptive, revelatory, extraordinary manifestations of God's power. And each of those adjectives is important. Redemptive, because God's miraculous works in Scripture, His signs and His wonders are connected with the work of redemption. Think about the splitting of the Red Sea. Think about the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of the dead. These are redemptive. 
that are laden with redemptive meaning and significance. Miracles are also revelatory. That is, a miracle is done by a prophet and an apostle to attest to the divine origin and authenticity of the message. Think about Moses. He was sent with a message. And how was he to confirm the legitimacy of the message? By doing miracles, by throwing down his staff, by sending frogs and gnats and everything else. They confirmed to verify, they, they served to confirm and verify the legitimacy of God's messenger. And given that connection, think about the main sections of redemptive history. Think about the biblical timeline. Think about the times within redemptive history where we see the largest number of miracles, the highest concentration of miracles. They cluster together, don't they? They're not sprinkled evenly across the timeline. No. There are long periods within the history of creation where there were few, if any, miracle workers mentioned, but they are punctuated by moments of incredible, miraculous activity. From creation to the flood, from the flood to Abraham, Israel's whole time in Egypt, 400 years between the Testaments, all of these sections of history, little to no recorded miraculous activity. And yet we see redemptive moments where there's great miraculous activity. And we also see great sections of inspired revelation, Scripture being given surrounding those moments of great concentration of miracles. Think about Moses. He becomes God's vessel for a huge number of miracles. And he also wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We have the prophets, Samuel, Jeremiah, Daniel, all the others, who saw wonderful signs of God done by their hands, and they also wrote inspired divine revelation. Think about Jesus and the apostles and all the incredible things that happened in the early church era. And all of them were foundational to compiling the New Testament scriptures. God doesn't just send miracles for fun. He sends miracles and miracle workers to confirm the divine origin of the message being delivered, to confirm the legitimacy of their message. Therefore, and here is the link, if we believe that miraculous signs, and miraculous signs attesting miracle workers are continuing today, if that's an office, if that's a gift that's continuing to happen today, that someone has the gift of miracles and can do it on demand, then we are committing ourselves to continuing redemptive revelation. This would entail that the canon is not closed and that there is more Bible to be written down. If I had the gift of miracle working, and I could demonstrate that before you, then we should listen to what I say as if I were Peter or Paul or any other apostle. Now, if, there are, if we believe miracle workers are today, we, we commit ourselves to the idea that there are divinely attested apostles and prophets to whom we must give our belief and obedience today, and that Scripture isn't enough. Now, I don't think that's right. The church has historically rejected such an idea because all of the key biblical passages tie miraculous signs and miracles to redemptive revelation and to the identity of the miracle workers as vessels of God's direct revelation. Moses, Old Testament prophets, Jesus, the apostles, New Testament era prophets, they worked miracles not as an end and of themselves, but in order to bring divine validation to the revealed message that they bring. 
Now there we go. That's our four links in the chain. That's a high-level overview. I've been like Google Maps level height, 10,000 10, feet going over this position. If you want more detail or you want individual passages exegeted, those two books I mentioned are wonderful. But as I conclude tonight, I want to I apply some of this. I know this sermon felt different. Hopefully you didn't feel too much like a lecture. But this topic is important, and a simplistic answer will, can produce harm. And so I want to be, be careful about what we're thinking on this. Because Satan wants to divide and to lead astray as many in the church as he can. And he has done a wonderful job dividing up the church and leading people astray through pursuing the gifts and forgetting about the giver of the gifts. And so how does any of this help us today? And what does any of this have to do with Jesus? Well, a couple of quick encouragements. First, I want us to be encouraged, reminded, but particularly encouraged of the sufficiency of God's Word. God has, in every age, given a sufficient amount of revelation to His people for them to know how to live and how to please Him. And we, in God's kindness, have it spelled out for us. It's very clear. We don't need any more human prophets to tell us how to love God and how to live. And what is wonderful, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, that he was an eyewitness of Christ's majesty. He says he was present when the Father spoke from heaven and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter heard the voice with his own ears. But then he says something unbelievable. He says in the very next verse that we have something more sure, more certain, more fully confirmed. And what is that sure thing? It's the written Word of God. Peter says the Word of God written down for us is more trustworthy than his own ears that heard the Father speak from heaven. Your ears can be fooled, but Scripture cannot lead you astray. Trust in God's Word and in the God who revealed it, the God who inspired it. We don't need to seek out human prophets with wondrous gifts. We have all we need to know and all that we need to trust God. And that's related to my final application. Be reminded that although there are no human prophets today, we are not without a prophet. Jesus Christ is our great prophet. Our confession reminds us that Christ exercises, even now in his exalted state, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And as our prophet, he still reveals to us. He reveals to us God's Word. He illumines the pages of Scripture so that we can grasp the truth found therein. And He reveals to us our sin. He uses His law to show us where we fall short. But He doesn't just leave us there, does He? He also reveals to us Himself and His Gospel so that we might know how to be healed of our sin. See, we were all born blind. We were blinded led astray by sin. We were in need of a prophet. We were pridefully running in directions of our own choosing. We're heading down the path of sin, headed towards destruction. But God spoke. Through the word of God, through our great prophet, God spoke light into the darkness of our hearts and minds. He showed us our condition. In His mercy, He revealed to us our sad estate. And what's more, He revealed to us the cure for our condition. 
He showed us the loveliness of the Lamb of God. He showed us His mercy and His compassion. He gave us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the power to believe. Our prophet's message was confirmed by many miracles, the greatest of which was His own resurrection, proving to us that His message is trustworthy and that His atonement is complete. If you haven't heard and trusted in this message, then do so tonight. Don't wait another moment. Listen to the greatest prophet who has ever lived. Read his words. Heed his warnings. Answer his call. His message is perfect. His calling is true. And for those of us who do believe, I urge us not to ignore our prophet. His word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But it's only useful to us when it's received with meekness. That's what James says. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Don't let us grow dull to God's word. Don't let us ignore it. Don't let it grow dust on our shelf while our soul withers and wastes. Cherish the word of our great prophet. Heed his commands. They are meant for your joy and your flourishing, not for your pain and misery. And lastly, I urge you to listen to the word of our great prophet who will preach to you tonight through the picture of the Lord's table. Our prophet proclaims to you a glorious message, the only message that is able to make you right with God. He preaches to us again his body, sacrificed to the grave in our place. His blood, which was shed in the place of sinners. And how His death is the nourishment, the healing, and the cleansing that our souls need. If you're trusting in Christ, walking like the saints in Acts 2, devoted to God's Word and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, then we invite you to come and join us at the table. If you have not yet trusted in Christ, or if you're out of fellowship with another congregation, first go and be reconciled. Trust in Christ, be baptized, and then join us at the table. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our great prophet and for the good news that is proclaimed by his word and the picture that we see in the table. We pray that you would bless these elements, that you would use them to build up your body. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.